Good evening, everybody, or good morning, or good day, or good whatever time it is in your part of the world. And thank you for joining tonight's Zoom chat about 2020 vintage in Burgundy, and also about the various questions which it's thrown up about uh, the future of Burgundy, where it's going, uh, are we going to survive, or have we really reached a tipping point? It's, of course, the third, um, third out of three, it turns out, of hot, dry vintages, with 2021 uh, very much a reversal of that. Um, please use the chat function um, as much as you can. Tell us where you're uh, listening from, what you're drinking, if you've got a glass open alongside. I haven't yet, but I shall later. Uh, and use that or the question and answer button. Use either to raise questions, and I will either address them as we go through or catch up at the end. I also uh, hope that if all goes well, we will have made a recording of uh, this talk and that will go up on our site and on YouTube, etc, etc, thereafter. So, um, 2020, third of three um, of the hot drive vintages, but they've all been quite different. Um, we're still learning our way uh, through it to try and, and, and work out where Burgundy's going. Um, what I'm going to try and do is, is address a little bit 2020, talk about how good I think it is um, and what the particular characteristics are. But as I mentioned at the start, really use that to talk about uh, wider issues in Burgundy at the same time. But if we start with 2020, I think it's got more in comparison with 2018 than it does with 2019. But I also think that uh, both people and vines have probably begun to learn a little bit more about how to handle these hot dry vintages. It didn't come as the same fundamental shock as uh, 2018 had done. So why don't we talk about the whites first, because they're easy. Um, it follows in uh, a series 2014, 2017, 2020. Uh, they're all quite different in their ways, but they're three vintages which were really good for white wines and almost universally good. It doesn't matter whether you're bottom of the slope or top of the slope. It doesn't matter if you're down in Macon, up in Chablis. It doesn't matter if you're uh, expensive or inexpensive as a wine. It doesn't really matter if you're a famous grower or a less famous grower. Pretty much across the board, it works in white. And I still don't really understand why it's so different in reds and whites, because fundamentally it is. I'm not trying to say that there aren't good reds, because I'm going to come on to that, and there are some utterly brilliant reds, but it's not uniform the same way as it is for the whites. So the yields were broadly speaking good. Um, similar, slightly ahead of 2019, loads of people were saying 45, 50 hectolitres a hectare. Very few people try to be ultra low in any case in whites because everybody accepts, almost everybody accepts that Chardonnay does a good job at um, reasonable yields in the way that you have to be a bit more careful with Pinot. So uh, everything is in place there. One thing that's different between Chardonnay and Pinot is that the Chardonnay actually uh, flowered quite a bit earlier. There was then a cooler period and the Pinot Noir flowering got held back a bit. Now, given that in the end, they ripened at more or less the same time, if anything, the Pinot ripened before the Chardonnay, what did happen was that the Chardonnay got a much longer hang time 
between the crucial first thing, uh, which is the um, uh, flowering and the crucial last thing, which is the picking. So in fact, we were up around 95 uh, days. I'm getting some awkward um, pinging noises. I hope that doesn't mean uh, anything has gone down. If somebody just um, put something on the chat to confirm that we are going ahead live, then you can still hear me. I'd be grateful. Um, just wait to see. Yeah, all good. That's good news. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, so I will continue and not worry about that pinging noise. Um, so the weights have started off well, and I did notice that there were various people on various sort of bulletin boards and, and like uh, who were saying that the weather in 2020 was going to be like 2003 and seemed to be going that way. Well, I lived through 2003 and I lived through 2020, and I didn't see any parallel. 2003 was frankly frightening. There were two enormous heat, uh, long periods of heat uh, spike in June, around about the time of Vinexpo, and even worse, first 15 days of August. And the grass uh, died, the trees uh, completely shut down, the vines too. It really had a sort of end of the world feel, feeling about it. And 2020 wasn't like that at all. It was hot and it was dry, uh, but it was an even temperature with few real heat spikes, a little bit more oddly enough up in Shabli. Um, and there was one at the end of July, which probably didn't do them any good. Um, but in central Burgundy and the Cape d'Or, it didn't really come in until August, uh, a little bit around sort of 10th-ish of August. And then again, at the end of the month, when the temperatures did get notice noticeably hotter. Um, and that will uh, will come to when we uh, tackle the reds more than the whites. Uh, so the whites go on their cheerful way. Um, and the weird thing is how the juice remained in the whites and didn't in the reds. The reason why there was some juice, and I was expecting some, was because we had plenty of rain in the winter before in the same way we did before the 2018 growing season and in the way that we didn't before 2019. So I was therefore expecting out of that uh, some um, a reasonable amount of juice in the grapes. And there were plenty of grapes in 2020. That wasn't the issue. Uh, so the whites come to the harvest. Um, people came back from their holiday, said, eek, help, we have to get out there into the vineyards. Talk a little bit more about that when we come to the reds. Um, and they probably started picking reds and whites together to begin with, just to try out. And they found the whites weren't really ripe yet. Now, broadly speaking, in this long, hot, dry period, um, there was hydric stress in the vineyards, and that, to some extent, blocked all the ripening. But they'd also blocked the change of the acidity. So in both colours, we actually have high acidity, the highest of the three years, 18, 19, and 20. All of them had a feel of a certain amount of freshness that could be confused with acidity, but only 20 really genuinely had the figures to prove it. Um, so you've got ripe grapes, but not, in the case of the whites, overripe. Hardly ever did I taste a white grape that was clearly overripe. And um, you had good acidity. And the most important thing of all is that I don't get any flavours of very ripe Chardonnay. I did to some extent in 2019, which I therefore like less, but it's not a fault, it's just a, stylish, a stylistic point. And if your taste is more towards this richer style of Chardonnay, then 2019 you would go banco on. But 2020, I think, can please pretty much everybody. 
Um, I was surprised how good the Shambles turned out to be. And uh, that's the reason for the surprise is because when I was there during the summer of 2020, um, tasting the 19s, it seemed particularly hot and dry. And because the vines in Chablis are spaced further apart, and because there is, there's more um, chips of white Gimmerigian limestone sort of on the surface, you were getting the sunshine reflected back up into the uh, vines as well as what you're getting coming down from above. I really thought they were going to struggle. And uh, having done all my tastings in June and July in 21, uh, I came away with a much more positive feeling about Chablis. And there is plenty of uh, Chablisian marine uh, style of wine. And uh, degrees didn't get too high in white, either there or further south. Uh, so that was all positive. So pretty much clean bill of health uh, throughout for the whites. Why wasn't it the same for the reds? And to characterize the reds, I'm going to say that I think there are many more examples of areas or producers whose wine suffered. And there are some truly stupendously great wines in 2020, which will surpass, I, I think, anything in 19 or 18. Sticking my neck out a little bit there because I think a number of other people, a number of growers, uh, who reckon they got 19 right, 19 remains their favorite. So the hot, dry conditions, um, why were they worse for Pinot Noir? Well, Pinot is a more sensitive grape. Uh, it doesn't flourish elsewhere in the world in hot, dry conditions, whereas Chardonnay does. Uh, so that's a starting point. Um, there are still some people out there who are um, deleafing systematically. And I, I can't help but think that this is a, a wrong move. They say they're deleafing the north face, which doesn't see the direct sunlight. I'm still not absolutely sure about this, I must say. But let's assume that everybody um, did leave, leave enough leaves on their vines so that there wasn't direct sunlight. Nonetheless, you got an effect of a wrinkled skin on the reds, or you could get that, and uh, wines becoming, grapes becoming cooked. So if I bring us uh, back to the um, very beginning of August, when people were going off on holiday, uh, winemakers were, um, or vineyard uh, producers were, Many of them stayed through a little bit later uh, into the beginning of August, but uh, most people were able to go away uh, for the first 10 days or two weeks in August. And when they came back, um, well, some of them burst into tears because the vines, which had looked so happy and so healthy when they left, were now looking parched and shriveled and some of the leaves were dying off. This would have been true of both colors, mind you. Um, and it looked like panic stations. So they immediately started sampling and they started doing some trial picks. Uh, and most people found that they needed to brush in and um, tackle their reds straight away. So this is more of a coat de bone phenomenon because the coat de bone is a little bit earlier. And here, one of the key decisions comes in, which is picking dates. Just before we get there, why was the Pinot more affected than the Chardonnay? I suddenly realized that though everybody had um, told me that they had decent yield in, in the whites and a miserable yield in the reds because there were no juice inside the berries, I'd never really asked why that might have been. So I rang up my friend um, uh, Dom Lafont today and said, why was there so much less juice in the reds? 
And he said, I'm glad you're asking me that question. He said, it's absolutely true that that was the case. But I don't know. The only theory that some people have discussed is just the difference of the color of the skin. And in the same way that um, you, know, you dress in white in, in, in the hot countries uh, because it reflects the heat off, whereas a dark color draws the sunshine and heat in, maybe that was true of the grapes. Uh, I haven't uh, got any scientific proof of that, but somehow or other, I want to know why the Pinot Noir uh, desiccated more than the Chardonnay did. It's all sounding a bit grim for Pinot at the moment, but don't panic, we're going to get uh, a much better uh, outlook. Hot, dry years, and it's not just 1819 20. I realized looking at my notes about the season growth, uh, it goes back earlier to 2017 and even 2016, maybe 2015. But weather patterns in general seem to have changed. And far more often, we've been getting an alternation between north wind and south wind, so cold but dry north and uh, hot but dry south wind. And we've lost the typical westerly, southwesterly airflow, which has been so characteristic of Western Europe uh, for such a long time. And it would seem to me to be the same reasoning uh, by which we had the hideous frost in uh, 2021 and also frosts in 2016, 17 and 19, but apart from 16, not as damaging as 2021. And that's because of the uh, polar air streams, the jet stream up just below the poles uh, seem to have got weaker, um, theoretically as a result of global warming, but I'm not a scientist qualified to talk about that, with the effect that you have uh, air flows running north-south more often than the standard uh, convection system, which brings them in from the west stroke southwest. So that uh, continued to be true in 2021 through April and the beginning of May, and then things changed and we got a much wetter damper summer because the westerly airflows came back to us from May onwards. Um, so I have no way of telling you um, what's going to happen in the future, but this is a key issue for climate. Is what we saw 2018 through 2020, is that now going to be the new norm with something like 2021 or earlier on 2013 being uh, a throwback, which is atypical, but will still happen occasionally? Because if we're to understand where Begum is going, we've actually got to try to get a handle on that. So Michael uh, has just uh, from Boston has just asked me to explain the good acidity again. Uh, the theory is that the um, hydric stress closed the vines down, stopped them going ahead with their normal maturation process, which would have um, brought up sugar levels, but would also have reduced acidity levels. Now I'll throw one other thing into the mix. Um, this is an idea that Anne Marais, Domaine Pierre Marais, suggested to me, and she has no scientific backing for it, but she had said in discussion with some others, they thought these very early vintages, there tends to be more protein in the juice, and she wondered if within the protein there were forms of acidity which enabled the wines to taste fresh, whether or not they really had, um, uh, they really had uh, a higher analysis of acidity or not. It's certainly something that we've been saying. We said about 15, definitely 16, uh, 18, 19, and 20. We did comment in Tasting Wines and Barrel that there was an aspect of freshness, even with high um, sugar levels. So now we've come back to our, our wrinkly skin, skins in some um, uh, places. And out of that, there are two things to look at. One is where your grapes are being grown 
and two is your decision making when it comes to picking, etc. So firstly, where the grapes are grown. Now we noticed in 2018 that some of the classic places which were early picking but had become our favourites, the Chambolles and the Volnais, really, really suffered in 2018 by drying out. Uh, this is where you've got <clears throat> often high alcohols, certainly very overripe flavours, and you got some raw tannins because the tannins hadn't been able to mature enough because, again, either the thermal stress or the hydric stress had stopped the full maturation. Um, and I'm happy to say that uh, in 2019 already, there was much less evidence of bad news in those places. In 2020, uh, it was uh, also less than in 2018. I was strongly on the lookout for it. I had a couple of uh, vineyards which were my my sort of worry spots, let's say Volnay Fremier, Volnay Bouillard, and in Chambol, even Bon Mar. Um, and in 2020, they've come through rather better. Instead, Volnay Sontenot seemed to ripen very, very early. Um, and the Hill of Corton, almost everybody picked Corton at the very start of their picking regime. And sometimes they even stopped after they picked Corton, and I still found Cortons at over 15% alcohol from people who actively don't like that style and don't want to make that. Um, you know, and, and it's a worry. I think people did get a little bit caught out in that region. Conversely, down in Sontenay and Marange, where everything is that bit more humid because they've got the river running uh, through the valley just at the foot, um, instead of the, uh, well, the N74 does actually... Um, uh, um, a main road at any rate continues along there, but you also have both the valley and the canal and some side rivers. Um, so they did really well in 2020. Uh, people could pick a little bit later. Uh, grapes had a longer hang time. The degrees didn't get out of condition and you didn't get the wrinkled skins. Flétrie in French. Um, I think also uh, pomards, I've been talking about for some while now, typically more humid. Those heavy clay soils retain the water. Uh, result in rough tannins. They don't ripen the grapes properly, but in 2020 they did ripen, so that was a good place to be. Um, so my slight negatives in place terms would be a little bit Volnay, quite a bit Corton. Uh, up in the Côte de Nuit, Nuit Saint-Georges, I found the wines often a little bit too rich and flavours too ripe, but not invariably. And Marcenay, the vineyards in Marcenay, which are really on... Um, what they call the uh, cône de déjection, the alluvial fan, um, very light, arid soils. Uh, they struggled, and a few vineyards at the tops of hills on light soils suffered. But please, please, this is quite important, don't take that as absolute. That doesn't mean don't buy any vineyards from those appellations, because um, going through all my tasting notes, there are a load of wonderful Volnais and Cortons and Louis Saint-Georges. It's just, it's in those areas, there are more often wines that struggled a bit, but the people who, for whatever reason, got it right have made glorious wines. Uh, Lafarge's in Volnay, for example, all their wines. There's no sign of anything negative there at all. So we shouldn't get too hung up over these no longer sweet spots, but we should just be aware of them and think about them uh, for the future. And equally, we should be extending where we want to buy into areas which might not have been on our menus uh, in a previous period. So. <clears throat> um, next up is date of um, picking now it's not just about um, 
when you choose on the calendar because how you run your vineyards makes a big difference. I remember something, I think it was Cécile Tremblay, who said that when she was out uh, just sampling one of her vineyards, there was a uh, chap next door was sampling his. And broadly speaking, you know, they don't do things all that differently, but hers were at 13 and his were at 11 and a half. So obviously some form of vineyard practice, I, she didn't know what, I don't know what, had made a difference. So we can't just say somebody who's picked 10 days later than the other guy is definitely going to have made worse wine. It does depend where your vines had got to. Which brings into play, are there any techniques in the vineyards which uh, can do better, can do worse? I think I'll park that and come back to that a little bit later on, because I'd like to keep the flow going of the picking dates and, uh, and what that meant. But broadly speaking, the issue is, what are your grapes going to taste like? It's not absolutely on sugar level. Some people did pick when they felt things were getting, let's say, beyond 13 and a half. They thought, right, we've got to go. Other people monitored the acidity when they felt that they were comfortable with the acidity. They said, right, we're going to go. Uh, a third lot of people said, I'm going to wait for everything to be phenologically ripe. Now, this I've been hearing. Uh, it is definitely a school of thought that this is the key. Uh, and frankly, I think it is definitely wrong in the circumstances of 2020 and probably ever since 2018. Um, some of the, so I could talk about one day in Von Romane when I visited seven different producers uh, in that one day. Four of them started and finished before the end of August, and three of them didn't start until somewhere between the 4th and the 10th of September. And the people who started in August, all but one of them uh, finished in August and the other guy finished on the 1st of September. So it's really clearly two completely different schools of thought. Well, frankly, I much preferred almost everybody in the uh, first school. Um, and it doesn't matter to me if you have a small phonological aspect which isn't fully right. Goodness knows, in all the period, the much cooler period, we had loads of vintages like that. And just a length of time in bottle just smooths out those little corners which weren't perfectly ripe. And you can even have some really ugly unripe vintages like my own year 1957 or 1972 or 1980, where there are some really gorgeous wines which emerge further down the road. And those are extremely unripe years. Um, but 2020 clearly is pretty much ripe. So if the acidity isn't quite what you want, if the tannins are fractionally underripe, if the skins taste just a tiny bit not ripe, if the pips haven't gone completely brown, sometimes you have to accept that and you've got to compromise. If sugar levels go up, I don't like it. But especially if the grapes start to taste uh, overripe, raisiny, um, a version which is nearly wrong, but you can just about get away with, like those sun-dried cherries that you might get in certain types of uh, muesli. Um, you know, it's actually sort of quite pleasant on its own, but if it is the only flavour in the wine, it's too much. And certainly if you get the, um, uh, like, um, well, chocolate notes and uh, like scorched fruit and like raisins, then it's definitely gone too far. Those wrinkly skins are bad news. And though lots of people will have used their sorting tables to clear most of the uh, wrinkles, wrinkled um, fruit out, uh, not everybody will have done that thoroughly enough. Um, and 
certainly the people who did do it really thoroughly reckon they could have thrown away as much as a quarter of their already small crop. But goodness me, you can taste the difference in their wines. So, so well done to them. Um, I'll cite, I'm not going to cite any negatives during this, but I'll cite a couple of people uh, every so often who I think did get it right. And Christophe Peromino would be one, and uh, Louis-Michel Lichet-Bellard would be another, uh, where you just taste a purity in the wines uh, all the way through that clearly is a little bit linked to really smart work on the sourcing tables. So let me go back to my um, seven people in Fome Romane. There were three of them who were the late picking uh, crowd and one of whom never uses stems, one of whom used not to use stems but has begun to use a proportion, not a huge amount, maybe 20%, and one of whom is gung-ho 100%, uh, though he does uh, then snip out the main stem. So, so he picks up a bunch of grapes and he snips off little bunchlets, like sort of florets of cauliflower, if you like, or broccoli. He snips those off, so he's left holding, or his 24 people he's got working on this sorting table, he's left holding the main stem with some of the side stems, and he's got on his sorting table, uh, in case anything else needs to be removed, uh, he's got little bunches of three or four grapes together. It's not every single grape destemmed individually, um, keeping its pedicels. That's a huge amount of extra work. Um, his vines, he has some in the Cote de Bone, and I thought they had got a little bit cooked um, because um, the uh, alcohol levels just got a little bit too high. But everything he made in the Cote de Nuit uh, was utterly astonishing, including the most sensational HSO I've ever drunk. Um, so, well, I, I should have said tasted, but in fact, we did drink the sample bottle afterwards, him and me at the end of the tasting, because it was so incredibly good um, that uh, we needed to do that. Anyway, um, so that brings me into the winemaking. And yes, you can be a whole bunch person or you can be a, 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 always a D-stem person. And I like both very much. Uh, my palate does lend itself to enjoying the whole bunch version. And I do think in a hot vintage uh, where the grapes are basically very ripe, I think it's a good way to go. I certainly understand the people for whom it doesn't suit their temperament. It isn't something they want to do. and I'm not going to try and persuade them not to, but if you're not going to use any whole bunches, you've really got to pick uh, on the earlier side and not the later side. Um, normally, I try and sit on the fence and explain the pros and cons of both ways, but I feel this reasonably strongly uh, uh, as to what's the right, the right way to go in the new look Burgundy. So... Within the reds, there's then the issue of tasting them. And when we came to the 2018s, I found a lot of wines where I really struggled. Am I being given uh, tired samples? Because 2018 was the a first year when many, many more people had pre-prepared samples rather than tasting out a barrel. People didn't want to keep opening and closing the barrels. There was a risk of Brettanomyces and volatility in 2018 that was quite, quite important in the French sense. There's quite a lot of it. Um, and people didn't want to um, keep putting their uh, pipettes, their wine thieves, into a barrel and then take a sample then into another barrel, another sample, another barrel, because if any one of their wines did had got a little bit of bread, they would then be spreading it around all their barrels. And one person, uh, Matthias uh, Parron-Croix at Domaine Afro, this year in 2020, 
he had got a separate pipette for every single uh, barrel. So there's little rows of 20 odd pipettes, and we tasted through his wines with a different one for each wine, which was uh, uh, a little bit uh, uh, exceptional, but uh, credit to him for doing it. Anyway, nowadays, many more people pre prepare samples, and sometimes they prepare them a little bit too early and they decide not to use any sulfur in them. Uh, so as not to make the wines a little bit too strict and stern, um, then that can be a problem. And there were a few wineries where when I tasted 2018s, I really wasn't sure if the wines were cooked and lacking in freshness or if the samples were at fault. One or two times I could see it clearly was the sample. And I'm happy to report, I know that uh, a number of people who went to the London tastings of January uh, 2020 to taste the 2018s, they found, for example, the wines of Ghislaine Barthe were horrible and they thought they'd got the vintage wrong. I had liked them from uh, barrel and I've just retasted them all in bottle and my tasting notes ended up really close. I didn't look at my 18 uh, notes in advance of doing it, but my tasting notes were really close and they came through really well. So that was good news. Um, anyway, um, so back to this issue of samples. Uh, again, it was something we had to worry about in 2020. Uh, perhaps a little bit less than 18. Um, and what I frequently found was that within any one cellar, there were wines that had really worked and others which were a little bit tired or a little bit dried out or had caught the heat too much. And then I started getting into a position in which I thought, right, well, that clearly hasn't worked. No, that hasn't worked. And then I thought, thought stop a second, because every so often I come across something where my first impression was that it was on the powerful side, and I was thinking that's going to be a negative for this year. And then I realized, having spattered out and been chatting away, that the flavor was still with me. I wasn't really, I was getting power, yes, but I wasn't really getting overripe flavors. And though there was a dryness to the structure, it wasn't too dry. And the fruit was just swarming back at the end of it. And that caused me to realize, having been really quite negative at the start and occasionally later on going through tasting the 2020 reds that there are some absolutely colossal colossal wines here really really great red wines which are going to be uh, extraordinary in the really long term and some of those wines made me think about 2005 which is a vintage of immense quality but still unbelievable youth um, and sometimes on the drier side with mixed in a small percentage, and only a small percentage, a 5% or 10% of 2003 for the flamboyance and verging on uh, overripe fruit, but, but not too, it's okay if it's only 5 or 10%. So that's sort of where I would put the best of the 2020s, like um, 2005, but with a slightly more flamboyant, richer fruit in there as well. Um, so more comments and questions coming up there. And I will talk, I will come back and talk about the canopy management um, uh, shortly. Um, but so those are my general thoughts. I ended up with a huge number of 2020 reds, which I thoroughly approved of. Some others, which I think they're probably still good wines, not quite my style. And some which I was forced to say, I think this one just doesn't work. Um, they didn't get to it in time. And uh, you know, I can't really blame a, a grower who's got most of them right if there were one or two vineyards. You can't pick everything all at once. 
But that brings us to the vineyards and to the the one aspect of the 2020 season, which I haven't mentioned uh, so far tonight, which is COVID. Um, but of course, COVID hit the beginning of um, well, middle of March, uh, and people really didn't know if they were even going to be allowed out into the vineyards to run the vines. Uh, they did go out; they were allowed out. There were remarkably few cases of uh, COVID amongst the vineyard community because they were outside in the in the fresh air, doing their vineyard stuff and not seeing people, and no customers, and no wine writers visiting. Um, and happily, COVID didn't strike then, and it didn't strike during the harvest. And everybody was terrified that the uh, the inspectors would come around, as they often do during the vineyard, uh, during the vintage season, to make sure nobody's breaking any rules. And they test everybody, and if somebody was uh, positive, then they would have to sort of cancel the whole harvest, which just means that you would lose everything. Anyway, that didn't happen. Though we have had bumper crops of COVID, uh, mostly, fortunately, Omicron, and people mostly not losing their sense of smell, but a bumper crop from um, uh, a little bit October this year, but particularly November, December. Um, I've been safe so far, touch wood, but I'm sure there is a little germ out there with my name on it at some point. Um, so anyway, people were very worried about the harvests. A lot more people are starting to use um, prestataire in French. So they are starting to use uh, gangmasters, uh, which unfortunately has slightly negative connotations because some, there are, can be bad sides to it. But more people are going that way, whether they will after 2021 when some of the gangs just never showed up. But what is happening uh, nowadays in these hotter um, years is that people, once they start, they want to go quickly. Several teams maybe of pickers uh, get the stuff in uh, rapidly. Pick only in the mornings if they can. Um, have refrigerated trucks or some other way. Maybe they can take them down in their uh, large goods lifts uh, down into the cool cellar, but do something to keep the grapes cool. Because if you do de-stem or even the work on the sorting table and your grapes are warm, they do start to fall apart a bit and the skins can get damaged more. So you want to start with them cool. Um, now, I think I'll just continue with vinification um, briefly and we'll come back to the vineyards after that. Um, what I am seeing is people moving away from modernist Pinot making, which I denote as the school of doing a cold or cool, at any rate, pre-maceration for a week, 10 days maximum, then bringing things up to um, normal temperature and letting the fermentation start. If you do that, you have to use a fair amount of sulfur. Um, and also now that people are using more whole bunch, this is a less suitable way of doing it. So more and more people are no longer doing the cool pre-maceration. They might make sure the grapes are cooled down to 10 or 12 or 13 just on arrival so that they don't get um, mistreated in the first stage of the processing. But basically, they go into the vats um, straight away, having been destemmed or otherwise. And the fermentation is allowed to start almost immediately and frequently without sulfur, particularly if you're using whole bunches. Uh, and we're seeing a lot more of this. It doesn't mean to say that the wines will get through into bottle, but it is becoming more typical, than, typical in both colours to hear people saying, I don't use sulphur for vinification. I only put my first lot of sulphur in after the malolactic fermentation and then adjust again so I have a small amount of free sulphur um, by the time the wines are bottled. So, um, yeah, uh, that's, that's a little bit more the way people are going. 
So they've also got to make sure they've got their grapes of the best uh, quality. So we'll go back into the vineyards now. Do you go up, down, or sideways uh, from the standard uh, Burgundian um, viticulture? So first of all, I would expect people to go down because in the south of France, in the hot areas, the Chateauneuf du Paps of this world, your vines are trained way lower throughout Provence, Languedoc, etc. Um, whereas in the north, in Alsace, you train, or in Germany, things get trained much higher, with the idea being that in the cooler areas, you want more of a leaf coverage, more foliage, because you want your photosynthesis through the leaves uh, in order to uh, get your ripeness. So if you've got more sun, you want that little bit less photosynthesis, therefore you probably have uh, fewer leaves. There's also a question as to whether or not uh, your water evaporates um, through the leaves. So if you have more leaves, you might get more water evaporation. On the other hand, if you have fewer leaves, you cover your grapes up less, and so you may get a bit more of a sunburn effect. Uh, so which way to go? We know that a few famous people have gone, not quite sky high, but up to much higher, so that the top wires could be as much as, as sort of two meters off the ground. Uh, La Lubis Loire was uh, led the way with that. Charles Lachaud, Dwayne Arnoux Lachaud, absolutely pioneered that. Um, Thomas Boulet is doing lots, various other people. Um, one, uh, one person I know is trying to do the same thing, but keeping it down at the original height of the uh, classical height of the vineyards so he can use all his regular machinery. Um, <clears throat> uh, but uh, one of the keys to it is this idea that by going high, you're no longer hedging your vines. So you are not cutting off the apexes. So you don't get a pushing out of what they call laterals in the new world, entrecœur in French, uh, because on those laterals, entrecœur, that's when you tend to get a second crop of grapes starting out, which won't be ripe at harvest time, and in any case is taking out some of the goodness of the vines. One other person said to me, but actually I want those lateral shoots because they produce more foliage around the fruiting zone, uh, so that helps to protect. And a lot of other people are saying, no, I'm not going to go higher, but I am going to, and so I'll hedge the top, but I'm not going to hedge as close in to the rows of the vines. So I'm going to go wider and have something more like a parasol effect. And in any case, the old leaves aren't really doing the, uh, the photosynthesis. It's the young leaves below which do it, and they get a bit more shade, so I won't have too much photosynthesis. Frankly, everybody is still guessing. The theories are fascinating, and we will have to see several more vintages before we can uh, really know. Um, uh, Michael, it is correct that the manic levels were very low, so there was no malolactic fermentation or very little, and the tartaric gives the freshness. Uh, but the uh, in 2020, I think that's fair, because it was the tartaric acidity, which that can still burn off as much as the malic can, but if the vines uh, close down a bit, then we probably did keep a bit more tartaric acid in 2020. It certainly is clearly a feature of the um, vines. So um, Christina asks, why is it possible to reduce the amount of sulfur uh, with using whole bunches? It's not that using whole, whole bunches enables you to reduce the amount of sulfur, but if you have chosen to reduce the amount of sulfur, then you've got to get your vinification going straight away with whole bunches, because the whole bunches at the top of the vat give you solids 
on which uh, various forms of bacteria can um, um, deposit themselves and you risk more bacterial spoilage using whole bunches than if you've destemmed and you've just got clear juice at the top. Um, so even some people who wear 100% whole bunches, uh, Chateau de la Tour and Clovuchot, for example, they've slightly backed off that because they want to have clear juice at the top. So they've, they've pulled back from 100% for that, for that reason. So gosh, there's so many different uh, possibilities and, uh, and, and so on and so forth, so many different theories. But the good news is that people in Burgundy are really trying to come to grips with this and, and work out what they want to do. Um, and not many people are throwing in the towel. A, a few are just saying, I don't want to pass on to my kids. It's all um, too hideous, too awful. One of the reasons that uh, at least one quite famous winemaker uh, says he doesn't want to continue, though, um, I'm sure he's going to continue, but, but why he feels negative at the moment, is because of the pricing. Um, we've got two things. We've got wine pricing, we've got land pricing. And of course, they are interconnected because uh, the price of the land is going to affect your costs uh, when you make your wine. We tend to think that uh, negotiations are going to be um, uh, affected by the price of raw grapes going up and domains are not. But actually, most domains are paying family members. Uh, you count as a domain as long as you have farmed the vineyards. You don't necessarily own all the vineyards. Some may, might be complete third parties who own the vineyards, and some might be family members whose retirement fund, their retirement is effectively funded by um, the money they get from whoever is making the wine at the domain for the grapes that they get in. That's far more widespread than you might think. And if the general cost of grapes uh, is going up, the bulk price is going up, and it's gone up hugely over the last few years, then that is going to affect um, the farmage rates, the rental rates, which is going to affect the uh, end consumer rates. Now, we spend all our time complaining about uh, prices of Burgundy, and there are so many threads on various bulletin boards that I look at and say, I'm never going to buy Burgundy again, and it's, uh, it's absolutely criminal the way the price has gone up. And now we see some 2020 EP threads with uh, everybody saying, it's awful, I can't get any allocations, the wines have all disappeared, they've all been bought, uh, what's going on, why can't I have some, even if the prices are uh, incredibly high. So it is the Burgundy paradox. I've felt for quite a while, since really shortly after the 2005 vintage, the prices in Burgundy were unsustainable, and I kept expecting a check. Uh, I kept thinking that we were heading into bubble territory, and it just doesn't seem to have happened. Partly because there is much more international interest, and everybody can see everybody's prices through various forms of uh, um, media. Um, and partly that a lot of the people who said that they would leave Burgundy haven't left Burgundy because the still the magic is there. The great news is how much more widely the possible options for buying has spread. You've got so many great people there, either um, new generations of established families in minor appellations, turning out wines which couldn't have been imagined even 15 or 20 years ago in those appellations. And that's only partly global warming, but it's also to do with paying the same care and attention to what they're doing um, as you would do if you had a really great vineyard. Um, 
And that means they're charging more for their Saramaz or oak coat or whatever it might be. Uh, but even if the price might have doubled for those vineyards, it's still less than the grander vineyards would have been a few years ago. So that sort of maybe explains why people are accepting these high prices. It's still not all that common for people in Burgundy to be setting out to make the most money that they possibly can and sniff around at the secondary market prices. And of course, they can all see the secondary market prices uh, now. Um, but even though some of the prices have gone up by a lot more than others, and I've been looking through uh, a distinguished UK wine importer's um, current offer of 2020 is comparing to um, the 2020, the 2017 um, PDF of their offer, and I'm seeing such a wide disparity of pricing, Chablis up 20 to 30 percent. Um, some established negotiants for decent Premier Cru's not up by much more than 10 percent, uh, and then some people up by over 100 um, percent. So. It's, it's, it's really quite a mixed picture out there and everybody has got to decide where they're comfortable and what they can do. And I don't buy anything much more than generic Bourgoins, minor appellations, occasional better villages, but virtually no Premier Cru or certainly no Grand Cru these days. Admittedly, I'm that bit older, and, uh, but I don't have the disposable income or desire to spend that income uh, where prices have got to. But I'm so happy with the wines which I am buying, which is great news. <clears throat> but also, why are grape prices going up so much? And that's partly to do with land prices. And it's amazing how many vineyards have changed hands that we only heard about in November, December this year. The reason for the timing is because at uh, Martinmas, um, so I think the 11th of uh, November, if I got my date, dates right, um, that is the day when the new vineyard uh, year's calendar really starts and when if you have a rental agreement or a contract to farm somebody's vineyard it might start for when contracts change it could start at another time but typically martin mass is the date that it kicks off from so that's when you get to hear about new contracts now quite a few of these changes are not vineyards having changed hands but the person exploiting those vineyards has changed like uh, Louis-Michel Ligier-Villaire getting lots of vineyards that were previously with La Marche, and there are a few other cases like that. But there are also several really big um, uh, examples of major vineyards having changed hands, and they will have been purchased at extremely high prices. Um, so let's just look at that and what it means. Um, there was one ouvre that changed hands last year, or possibly even back in 2020 now, um, one oeuvre is a 24th of a hectare, so it's enough to make you at Grand Cru level, and this was Bata Maraché, so it's enough to make you around about 200 bottles of wine in a normal year. It's a little bit low, the maximum, below the maximum permitted yield, but it, it would be a good yield. So somebody paid, I am told, I believe this is right, I wasn't, didn't actually see the contract, but 4.8 million euros for one oeuvre of Batar Maraché. Now, I did some sort of back-of-the-envelope uh, maths on this, and I reckon that nowadays, Batar Maraché, some people are asking as much as 250 euros a bottle. So if we pretend that 50 euros covers all your various other costs and that 200 euros is your, your upside, 
Um, if you made 200 bottles a year and you got 200 euros clear profit from those bottles, it would take you 120 years to get your 4.8 million euros back. If you looked at it another way, if you are getting your 200 euro return per, per bottle in any given year for your 4.8 million euros, you would have an annual return of 0.008%, less than, um, well, I'll just leave it in those figures. Even if you felt you could get 500 euros for your Batar Marache, that would still be 0.02 return on your money. So, okay, maybe people think that prices will, of land will continue to go up, and they always have gone up so far. Nothing always goes on going up, but amazingly so far it has. And or you just love it like uh, a wonderful picture on your wall or in your bank vault. You just want to own that uh, vineyard, the pleasure it gives you. Those are two other reasons. There is another problem, which has been talked about before, and I didn't quite understand it until the end of this, this last year. Everybody said, yes, but it affects inheritance prices. And I thought, fine, well, perhaps it does, but I didn't quite see how this hit home. But let us say that you have reached 60 um, and you've decided that you're going to hand your vineyards over to your various beloved children and you make them over to them, you will have an inheritance tax to pay. pay. There are various ways in which you can make it a little bit less of a percentage rather than more of a percentage. But typically, the lawyer dealing with it is going to look up the price that that uh, vineyard is worth. And he's probably going to take what they call the prix suffer. That's this quango called Safar, um, which sometimes gets involved in vineyards changing hands, um, quotes a price per ouvre for any given vineyard. And that's what your lawyer, your notaire, um, uh, puts on the forms, and that's how your tax gets calculated, and you have quite a bit of tax to pay. And you sigh, and you think, well, I love my kids, it's worth it. And so you do it. Any time up to three years after that date, the authorities can come back to you and say, you didn't pay enough tax. And the authorities at the moment are taking the price of the latest transaction. So a transaction that happened in 20, at the end of 2021, they can go back and anybody who has transmitted their vines in 18, 19, or 20 can suddenly be reassessed not at the suffer uh, price, um, but at the price of a recent transaction. And uh, I was talking to um, a grower in Chevrolet Chambertin who knows what the suffer price is. And he said for Griot Chambertin, which is the Vignana in, in, in point, the, uh, the suffer price is somewhere in the 200, I think he quoted me, 273,000 euros per ouvre. But he said a recent transaction of Griot Chambertin went for 2 million euros in ouvre. So let's say that's about eight times the price. Now the authorities have written letters, and they wrote them in November to more than 50 growers in the Cote d'Or saying, Oi, I want your tax on valued eight times what you paid. So, you know, what a. A uh, complete disaster that is. That means they're probably going to have to sell some vineyards, or the children are going to have to sell some vineyards to pay this tax. It's crazy. The system should should change. The system which should um, 
apply is that you should pay your inheritance tax on what the vineyards are worth in terms of what they will yield and not in terms of what some probably out-of-towner is prepared to buy in order to own those vineyards. So it's a real talking point at the moment, which is a little bit frightening for uh, what's going to happen to Burgundy in the future. Um, so it's, it's uppermost in my mind. We have got a climate threat. We have got, I didn't really talk in the vineyards, the fact that a significant proportion of vines, typically but not only, planted with on a rootstock called 161.49c, which used to be the favourite rootstock in Burgundy, are suddenly dying off. And the reason is that it doesn't have a particularly deep root system. And whereas those roots were deep enough to reach the water table in the past, they no longer are now. So it's not affecting really long established vineyards on 161.49. But anything planted now up to 30 years old is suffering. So You've got climate change, which maybe threatens the balance of your wines, but maybe people are reacting too successfully. You've got this um, rootstock problem and other diseases which are more prevalent than they were and threatening your vines. Uh, you've got land prices. Um, so it's, it's tricky. But you've also got nobody being complacent, a great generation of young growers coming through, um, and I really feel that the guys born in around 88, 89, you suddenly get a feel of a generation there. Charles Lachaud, Charles von Canet, Thomas Boulet is a tiny, tiny bit older, but he's sort, sort of the same idea. Uh, Clotilde Lafarge, uh, Mathilde Gruveau, loads of them. Um, a real sense of a renewed energy here in Burgundy, which is, which is exciting. So... There are danger signals and there are some great news as well. Um, I promised myself I wouldn't go on uh, much more than an hour. We're coming up towards that time. I've been checking on the comments. Um, I haven't seen anything. There's nothing on the questions and answers. So if we have any more questions, now is a good time uh, to ask them. If you want to know who really got it right and, uh, and who didn't in 2020, then I'm afraid you have to subscribe to my website. Uh, www.insideburgundy.com and then you get uh, get everything and the reminder that not only do I do the uh, scores out of 100 which we're sort of obliged to do nowadays but also um, you get star ratings out of 5 so that you can pick out if somebody's made a really good Bourgoyne Rouge or XCTRS um, because that it might, might only get high 80s but it can get lots of stars so there we go um, Right. Uh, can you any particular Premier vineyards are consistently successful across most of their owners? Um, uh, do you know Clos Vougeot is, is back in the frame? It's back something that we should uh, really care about again. And you get that feeling of real longevity in those wines. Uh, so um, it's true that they don't give you instant satisfaction in their first few years, but I thought Clos Vougeot came out really, really well. And uh, Thank you for your nice comments, uh, uh, several of you. Um, Matt would, would like me to share the identity of the wines you are buying. Um, I have talked about them uh, elsewhere. Uh, shall I do that? Shall I not do that? Um, uh, what I'm going to have this evening is a, a bottle of uh, just a straight Chablis from Le Ventureur up in uh, 
northern part of Chablis. I love the Buisson wines in Saint-Romain, uh, Pierron et Rougeau in Merceau. But there are just so, so many of them. Uh, follow lots more. Um, Saint-Aubert su- doesn't suffer too much from the heat, Thomas, but it does suffer from the drought. Uh, one vineyard, Enremy, which we used to have as joint top along with um, Mergidon de Chien, is a little bit more at risk, but another like Chateignier is getting to be really, really good. Um, the qualitative gap, William asks, between village and premier crew closing. Uh, I think, actually, it's the best uh, village wines. You've got those group of village D, which are sort of village plus, and they tend to be in a really good part of the slope um, where you still have enough soil uh, and actually, I think they are closing. I, I, I'd have them up there with um, the sort of, I, I don't mean to be disparaging with second division premier crews, but those which are a little bit below superstar status. So so maybe yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so um, yes, the question that John uh, Luca there about whole bunch being good in hot vintages, wouldn't it? Uh, decrease acidity in already hot vintages. Yes, there is an issue there. It increases the perception of freshness, but it does reduce overall acidity. And that is a reason why you might want to be careful. It it can affect the pH. It does reduce the alcohol and it slightly reduces acidity. Um, But most people have been prepared to uh, take that um, trade-off. A few people I know have backed off whole bunches in 2020 uh, for that reason. However, um, David, is 2020 as good in whites as 2014? It's so different in style. Whites it have an unbeatable freshness and energy, and they seem to have got younger. So maybe 2014 uh, might stay the winner. 2020 and 2017 is pretty good parallel. I think 2020 is like 2017 with just a few percent of 2014 in there as well. Um, I haven't tasted enough Puy Frises yet, Jonathan, because of getting the second edition of my book out. I missed spending as much time in the Maconnet and the Chalonnet and Beaujolais as I would normally do. The ones I've had so far have looked very good. So I'm, I think positively, but it's not quite the in-depth coverage. Oof, good. Um, um, David Morrison-Saint-Denis um, came out just fine. And I, it's, a, um, it, it's a village which I really love and I'm going to go into in much more depth. Uh, Christian, or Christian, uh, I don't think anybody, it wasn't obvious if anybody had acidified in 2020. It wasn't really necessary. I think people did a bit in 2019 and 2018, not really necessary in 2020. Grand. Well, I think, I think I've think i covered everything that's, uh, that's uh, up there on it. I, I do like to, uh, um, um, yeah, William, I can't give you an answer. I'm going to spend a lot more time, in particular in G3. Um, um, I, I, I don't have enough detail on that to give you an answer now. So um, I'm going to leave you all. I want to thank you um, for uh, joining us. It was a great group of you. And I would like to do a few more of these Zooms during the next few months, whenever I think we have a topic that's really worth going into in in detail. Um, I hope it's not too much to get a full hour of me just rabbiting on like this. uh, And uh, we'll we'll keep it going. Um, Do check in on the website. I will continue to be doing things for 67 pound mile. Uh, with their television, and uh, I'm sure you'll see me in various other guises. So thank you all, and I'm going to go and have a glass of wine. Good night.